The scripture reading for today is 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and I'm reading from the NIV. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I want to add my welcome to our wonderful call to worship this morning from Laura. Thank you, Laura, for welcoming us and, and drawing us into worship as you did so well this morning. And Sandy, what a blessing to have you read scripture. Uh, my name's Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. If you're a guest, I'm so grateful you're here and uh, trust that you'll feel welcome uh, in our presence. Uh, this morning, as I was out in the foyer, I um, ran into my friend, John Bannert. Hadn't seen him in the holidays. John has come back sporting a, a beard. He looks handsome. But he was uh, lamenting the amount of gray in his beard. And it was interesting that the three of us standing around him as old people with gray hair were certain that gray is, is the new in thing. So, um, But uh, speaking of, of being or feeling older, I guess, on, on New Year's Eve, my oldest child, my oldest son, Matt, who's 32, and his wife, Megan, called to, to tell Christy and I that uh, we're going to be grandparents in this year. So, uh, but as you can imagine, thank you, as I, as I have four elementary-aged children in my home, um, Grandparenthood hasn't really been on our minds as a family for the last 17 years. Uh, though I've certainly had my share of encounters with people who mistook my own children for my grandchildren. Um, it's happened less and less over the years, but, um, and I've been in counseling over that. So, um, Now, I wasn't really grandparented much, if I could use that term, in my own upbringing, mostly because of of geographical distance where my family lived, moved around and where my grandparents were located and then of course health. My grandparents were much older as grandparents go. Um, but I've certainly seen how being a grandparent has changed the lives of, of many around me. It was the first grandchild in my family, my brother, my older brother, when, when uh, he and his wife had a grandchild. It literally transformed my father's life with regards to his approach to his own health. And I've seen so many people in my lives who love being grandparents. 
and, and what that means to them. So I'm excited. I'm excited about it. I'm excited for my son and daughter-in-law to experience the joys and the struggles of parenthood. Excited to experience what it is that, that grandchildren bring to the family relationship dynamic and to grow into this calling as a grandparent. As we all know, parenthood at any level has its, its shares of joys as well as its shares of anxieties and fears. We've all experienced them as parents ourselves, or if you're not a parent, you've experienced it by being parented. I'm certain that, that your parents had all sorts of anxieties about your upbringing and your future. And it's interesting to talk to my son because they're nine and a half weeks into this pregnancy and they're already experiencing this odd mix of excitement and anxiety. The normal questions of, is it going to be a boy or a girl? And, and are we going to be good parents? Are we going to enjoy parents? But I was struck by a thing that my son is really wrestling with and his wife, which is, you know, how many children to bring into this broken and fallen world? With questions like, what sort of world and future awaits their children? How do they navigate the challenges and, and what are the implications for these lives that they're creating? Well, as those who follow Christ, fear and anxiety of life, it's a formidable picture. The picture that the Bible paints of life in a fallen world. And since that moment in Genesis 3 when a naked and ashamed Adam, a newly fallen human, encounters God, ever since that moment, humanity has lived in, with the constant possibility and even the threat of being afraid. And yet, in the midst of a broken and fallen world that brings much to be feared, things, spiders armed with needles in dark and confined spaces, sharks with laser beams attached to their heads, snakes on a plane, right? All these very few, very specific fears. Um, we're called to love. The Bible calls us to love in the midst of this broken and fallen world, in the midst of all of these, these fears and anxieties. It's Love is the defining theme of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And how we understand God's love for us and in us, and how we manage our fears and anxieties, it, it either enables us to walk more fully in a self-giving love, or it hobbles our ability to do so. You see, love and fear exist side by side in the life of the believer. And so the question I hope to answer this morning and as we introduce our new sermon series is, is how do we walk in faith and obedience and love without fear? Would you pray with me? Well, Father, you graciously give us a clarity of heart and mind by your spirit to hear the truth of your word, to see our deep need for the Son as our Savior and to submit to the leading of your spirit to conform our will to your own. Would you help us to do that here this morning? In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Well, this morning, as I've already alluded to, we're beginning a new sermon series, which, which is looking at the New Testament letters of 1, 2, and 3 John, which we've entitled this series, Love Without Fear, Lessons from the Epistles of John. 
Now, the authorship of these epistles is technically anonymous, but tradition ascribes it to the Apostle John, John, the son of Zebedee and the brother of James, the author of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Tradition says that John spent the latter years of his ministry in the city of Ephesus, ministering to a number of house churches throughout Asia Minor. And the book that we're starting with this morning, in 1 John, he has written this book to a church or a group of churches around Ephesus that were being attacked by a false teaching. And as we can see in, in, in verse 19 of chapter 2 of 1 John, there were some individuals who had been associated with the Christian community that John had founded. He's the, he's the parent and the grandparent, if you will, of these churches. And these individuals who'd been associated with the churches had, had adopted a false doctrine, particularly as it related to the person and the nature and the role of Jesus as the Christ. And these secessionists, as scholars call them, these secessionists, they left the church, but they went so far as to organize and to send out itinerant teachers and missionaries who, who moved among the Johannine churches. And they were undoubtedly creating confusion and crisis within the church. And so John has written these letters that we know in our New Testament as 1, 2, and 3 John, out of the love and the anxiety that a parent has for one's own children. Well, in terms of the, the form of the letter, John's unique in that it's, it's not a letter per se, but a, but a poetic sermon. If you've read it, it seems to repeat a lot of things. And this is by intention. John isn't developing his ideas in a linear and logical way. In, in contrast, he's using a, a well-known technique of ancient rhetoric called amplification where he's circling back repeatedly as letter cycles, each time offering a, a slightly different emphasis and angle, using hyperbole and stark contrast. But he keeps circling back and amplifying three themes, three primary themes of his letter. Life and truth and love. And this isn't new information to his audience as we read in, in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. All the key words and all of the images that are reflected in Jesus' teachings that are recorded in chapters 13 through 17 of John's Gospel those are the themes that John keeps coming back to, to remind his audience of the truth that they have heard, the life that is in Christ, and the love that should flow out of it. And so I'd encourage you, as you dive into these epistles over the next 10 or 12 weeks, that you read those chapters of John's Gospel as well, 13 through 17. And 1 John, as a letter, has, has two primary objectives. As I've already mentioned, John is combating the false doctrine of these teachers. But he tells us in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to reassure you. And so our sermon text that we heard read this morning 
anchors where John begins his letter, and it's where we need to begin this series. A reminder of the origins of the true gospel. The message concerning the word of life, and this message that concerns the word of life as the basis of our fellowship with God and the Son and with one another, which John says he hopes continues. It's what he says to make our joy complete. In verse 4, look at me if you have a Bible in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. In this very opening sentence or sentences of his letter, John lays down his authoritative apostolic witness to the reality of Christ's identity as the eternal Son, as has been observed in his earthly life. John, who walked and lived with Jesus, is giving this testimony. And very clearly at the outset here, he's telling his readers, he's reassuring people that there is no Christianity, there is no faith if Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God and man, is not at the center. And he goes on in verses 3 and 4 to to relate this fundamental doctrinal truth to everyday experience. Look at verses 3 and 4, he says, What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John tells us that the word of life was revealed in Jesus Christ. And it's guaranteed by our personal experience when we place our trust in Christ, and we have fellowship with Christ and the Father through the Spirit. That's the experience, this true life, this communion with God and Jesus. It's a, it's a gift that we have through this indwelling of the Spirit that reassures us of who God is and who we are in Him. And this new life, he says, is it's made evident by our own conduct and our way of life. So in in light of these fundamental principles that that our deeply personal faith comes about because of the indwelling of the person of Jesus and our life lived in that fellowship makes him known and it becomes interpersonal because we're having a relationship with the Father and the Son in the Spirit and with other believers and the postures we adopt with non-believers. That's what makes this new way of life evident in in how we live ours. And so so John addresses these falsehoods by by proclaiming truth. These false teachers had had adopted and were were teaching a a new and corrupt theology and morality and spirituality, a theology that said Jesus isn't the incarnate Son of God. 
in a morality that minimized the importance of, of sin and confession by, by claiming that even in your unrighteous behavior, you have fellowship with God. And a false spirituality by really claiming that they had some sort of special anointing of the Spirit that other people didn't have. That they were the ones who'd been given the true knowledge of God. And John alludes to these things throughout this letter. And this idea of having some sort of special knowledge, this became the, the center of, of these distinctively corrupt beliefs which led these false teachers to separate themselves from the churches and, and posture themselves as the new moral and spiritual elite. And this arrogance that they had, it manifest in an unloving posture toward others. Well, this idea that, that ones might have special knowledge, which is really a belief system contrary to right belief, has a name. It's called Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. And it had its origins in paganism. But as the early church began to grow, it began to disrupt Christianity. This influence that pagan Gnosticism had in the culture began to creep into the church. And against the right belief, the orthodox understanding of the goodness of all creation... Early Christian Gnostics believed that the material world was irredeemable and that salvation came through special knowledge. Now, Gnosticism is complex and it has a complex history, and I'm, I'm just trying to summarize it, but, but these Gnostics in this particular case, they believed Jesus was divine. But since Gnostics believed that the material world was bad and therefore the flesh was evil, they didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus was really incarnate. He, they would say, appeared to have a body, but he didn't. He seemed as if he was crucified and died, but he really wasn't. And he didn't, and he thus wasn't resurrected. And so Jesus, in their mind, or their teaching, simply brought this special saving knowledge into the world as a messenger of what they call the supreme being. You see, Gnostics acknowledge this supreme deity, but it's not the same God that you and I worship. But one of the challenges here, particularly in early Christian Gnosticism and even what we experience today, is that it's not portrayed as a complete falsehood. Often the challenge we face is that these are half-truths that often look like a fervent affirmation of Jesus' divinity, but really it's at the expense of the fullness of humanity. And Gnosticism is still around with new forms that beset our culture. They're just not rather obvious. And because nobody's walking around saying, hey, there, there's no supreme being. But what the truth, the half-truth that's being posited is that it's, it's human beings themselves who can function redemptively in this world. We're not utterly reliant on God for our salvation. We can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, by our own human ingenuity. We can save the world. We can save humankind. We can save our children's future. This idea is that, that our enlightened mentality, right, will save all of humanity from the ill effects of a fallen and broken world, from suffering 
from all the limitations of our flesh, these advances in technology, psychology, philosophy, these are the things that our enlightened mindset says allows us to escape from the evils of the material world. But the, the, the lie here is that we're creating a paradise of our own, not longing to be participants in the creation of the paradise that God has called us to participate in, in the paradise that God one day will restore through his new creation. And I want to be clear here that that Christianity is not anti-intellectual. It's not anti-scientific or anti-technological. The development of knowledge and science and technology are, are essential aspects of who we've been created to be, right? This creator has created us in his image to create with him as part of a collaborative community. But the difference is God calls us to put him at the center of our activity and our beliefs. God is the true redeemer, the ultimate restorer. As my wife likes to mention or remind me, a good husband, a good father, a good grandparent... A good human makes a terrible Jesus. You see, modern Gnosticism creeps into our thinking. It it wants us to yoke technical power and our own knowledge with political power for the sake of a complete recreation of our world where we can put the defects and the limitations aside and we overcome them by our human will and effort And then we spread these benefits throughout the rest of society by force, if necessary. And like I said, the the church isn't immune to this. We have a lot of well-placed desires to see the kingdom advanced in numerous ways that are not antithetical to the gospel or the Great Commission. But what I'm trying to help us to see here, friends, is that fear can obstruct love. You see, if we're so fearful that God's not going to get it right on our timeline or if that we've got to get it right in order to be in the good graces of God, we've got to get it perfect, then our fear can obstruct our love. Because fear tells us that we have to make it work for ourselves and for our future. Fear tells us that God may not deliver on his promises. Fear tells us that we've got to get it exactly right. Exactly right as Christians. Exactly right as parents. But friends, it's the message and the method and the manner and the means by which the church and the individual Christian seeks to help bring the kingdom into reality. It's, It's the methods and the manner and the means that matter more than the results to God, right? It's the heart behind how we plant the seed and how we water the ground that matters most to God. You and I, friends, God has invited us to participate in his work, and we have a role to play in that. But you and I, friends, we don't save people and nations. Jesus saves people and nations. You and I don't fix broken people. Jesus fixes broken people. In 1 Corinthians, 
the Apostle Paul writes, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. Paul's saying we're not anything special. God is the one who is special. Who has special knowledge? God has special knowledge. You struggle with divine mysteries and and want to make it a clear reality, you might be dabbling in Gnosticism. Paul goes on to write, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. You see, God is calling us to participate in this process, to, to plant and to water to share the good news, to go and make disciples of all people groups, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. But, but Paul says, you are God's field. You are God's building. God doesn't need you and I to do any of this. God invites you and I to participate in it. For our benefit and for his glory, we are the field that God is tending to. We are the ones being built up as a spiritual household to be a holy priesthood, as Peter says. We are the object. We are not the builders. And so, friends, we have to be on, on guard for, for any form of, of arrogant superiority which, which might cause us to look lesser upon those from whom we differ, believers and unbelievers alike. You see, the Orthodox Christian differs from the modern Gnostic. Not not that we eschew the knowledge and the scientific and the technological fruit that, that comes from it, but we're different in the spirit of how we use these things. The Orthodox Christian continues to grow in their capacity and posture for Christ-like love, to love without fear. And so here's the truth that I want to offer as a, as a controlling proposition, if you will, as you read these Johannine epistles and you listen to the rest of these sermons for the next weeks. And that proposition is this, that, that fearless love is the fruit of the light and life in Christ. Fearless love is the fruit of the light and the life in Christ. So I've thrown out a lot of things here this morning in this introduction. Let me, let me recap or summarize, if you will. We're, we are called by God in Christ to love. But our fear keeps us from loving God completely and ourselves correctly and others compassionately. So how do we walk in this? Well, both love and fear are powerful emotions. They significantly impact our human behavior. Love brings us this sense of safety and security and significance and belonging. It provides those things in our life, but it it motivates us and it inspires us. It's a source of comfort and support during difficult times. Fear, on the other hand, is characterized by feelings of anxiety and worry and apprehension. It's it's a natural God-given response to perceived threats or dangers. It's designed to help us 
to protect ourselves from harm. See, both postures of love and fear have healthy expressions. But our disordered loves and fears can become overwhelming and they lead to negative outcomes if we don't manage them or express them properly. Jesus calls us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We see it in the Synoptic Gospels three times when he's asked, what is the great commandment? This is his answer. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. But our fears might whisper to us to husband some parts of our heart, soul, and our mind and strength so we don't get hurt in this process of love. John, in his letter here in verse 16 of chapter 3, says we have come to know love by Christ laying down his life for us. And so, therefore, we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But yet our fear whispers to us that maybe we shouldn't lay it all down. Maybe we should keep a little bit back for ourselves just to make sure we have what we need. You see, the images of fear that we find in the Bible, they they cluster around the character and works of God, this idea of fear as reverential awe. But they also cluster around, we see, fear in the face of forces of nature, Fear as a result of death and calamity. Fear that comes about because of people and their actions, warfare. Fear regarding the end of history. But it's important to note that in regard to all these causes of fear, the Bible repeatedly holds out the possibility, sometimes portrayed as commands, that those who trust in God are exempt from being afraid, right? This, this phrase, fear not, 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the year, we're told, that we are exempt from being afraid. Now, does that mean we're never going to feel fear or anxiety? No. But what God is reminding us is that fear not, those things are not going to overcome you. John tells us in verse 18 of chapter 4 of of this first letter that perfect love casts out fear. The whole verse says this. He says, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. The punishment that he's referring to that people are fearing is the punishment of God. Their damnation. But the context of this verse is important for what I hope we can see this morning. In verse 17, it says, In this, love is made complete with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. A different way of stating that last part, he says, Because in this world, we're like Jesus. Because in this world, we are like Jesus. We don't have to fear. Because in this world, we're like Jesus. We're free to love, and we are called to love like Jesus loved. A sacrificial, self-giving, self-emptying love that holds nothing back. That husbands none of our resources for ourselves. That has perfect trust in the life 
that is in the Father through the Son and lived out in the Spirit. Because we're like Jesus, we're free to love like him. And we're empowered to love like Jesus, to love without fear. You see, fear faces inward. It focuses on what will happen to you. It focuses on the risks. Love, in contrast, faces outward. It focuses on caring for the other person more than you care for yourself, which is an easy thing to say in a sermon and much, much harder to live out in our flesh and in the context of our lives and in this world. But see, I think the the actionable principle here is that the more you look outward, the less you look inward. The more you love, the less you fear. And that's one of the truths that Jesus wants us to see. That's what the Spirit is whispering to us when the fears and the lies creep into our mind. That the more you love, the less you fear. Writing about C.S. Lewis on this topic of loving without fear, Dr. Art Lindsley says, love can never be seized apart from courage. And he goes on to quote what Lewis says about love in Lewis's book entitled The Four Loves. Lewis says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be broken. If you want to be sure to keep your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal, especially cats. He didn't say that part. Lewis says, wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglement. Lock it up safe in the casket. Safe, dark, motionless, airless. But he continues, he says, it will not be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all of the perturbation of love is hell. You see, God wants us to love freely like Christ's love. And God tells us that he knows that there are risks and there are hurts and there are trials. But he says, fear not, for I am with you. I am with you until the end of the age. I've called you by name. You see, God is always drawing us out of our comfort zone, right? I think Adam and Eve would have been perfectly happy to never leave the safe confines of the garden. And before the fall, their call was still to expand the boundaries of that garden. But after the fall, they were expelled into the hostile world. And then Noah and his family, when the ark comes to rest on on the Mount Ararat after the flood, I think they would have been perfectly happy to stay in that ark in the presence of God with everything they needed rather than go out into this cold, muddy world and start all over again. God is calling us out of our safe places and he's calling us to love. You and I are not called to fear the way others fear. 
It's the proper reverence and fear of the Lord that should drive out or at least lessen fears about the conspiracies that we find in this life or anything else. The more you and I are loving God at any particular moment, the less we can fear people and circumstances. Because in this world, we are called to be like Jesus. And so we must surrender our fears and love like Jesus loves, not in word or speech, as John says, but in action and in truth. We must allow the love of Christ in us to cast out our fears of being hurt and allow God to draw us out of our self-made zones of comfort. Love can never be seized apart from courage. And the more we love and fear God, the more we can give ourselves in a sacrificial way. Fearless love is the fruit of light and life in Christ. And so may the truths of John's letter, letters, as we look at them in these weeks, may these truths take root in our hearts and manifest in our actions. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Father, we just come to you with eternal gratitude that that your word is true, that your word manifests in the Son, and that your Son went to the cross and willingly gave up his life. He went to the grave and rose from the dead so that we might know fellowship with you. And Father, you've given us your spirit that confirms to us the truth of who you are. And Father, I pray that as we live in this world where we're assaulted with so many half-truths and wrong ideas, that your Spirit can counsel us and assure us and remind us and draw us back to the truth of who you are and what it is that you've called us to do. Father, I pray for every one of us that we would know the fullness of life that comes from walking in Christ and being led by your Spirit. Father, help us to be able to see clearly our anxieties and our fears that keep us from loving you completely, from loving ourselves correctly and from loving others compassionately. And help us to to bring those fears and anxieties at all times to you in prayer and let you do the the work with those things to remind us that, that, God, you see us, that you are with us in our trials and in our sufferings and that you promise one day to make all things new again, that at whatever price we pay in this life, doing your work with you for your glory and for your kingdom, God, that you promise that one day it will all be worth something of eternal value. And we'll look back on this life and the things we experienced as a, just a blip in our cosmic existence as we just live in paradise with you and a new creation in the way that life was intended to be. God, help us to grow, to be more like your son. Help us to love like him and help us, God, to love without fear. And we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let us stand together.